0: All right, I got the mic. <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, I am super excited to be here um, and to be sharing with you. This is my first time locally doing something like this. So it's really, uh, I want to say, a good experience seeing so many faces that I know instead of strange faces that pretend that they like me because I'm new. So that's, that's really great. Um, so anyway, I know that there's... A lot of people in this church community and, and even in the, the um, what do we call it, the brave space, the podcast group that we host, a lot of people are really engaged in this process that gets this title of deconstruction. And I know my friend Erica, she's like, I am so over that word. But you know what? She's so neck deep in the process. And I think some of us are in a place like that where you know, we we kind of are like, oh, that word is used so much. And the reason it's used so much is that it really is so accurate. But if you don't like that word, sometimes deconstruction feels like taking like a big stick a dynamite to something, and, and then maybe there will be nothing left over. And I would just want to remind us that in our process to be gentle, to be kind, because Jesus tells us that it's kindness that leads us to change our minds. So even if we've been handed something that doesn't feel like it fits or that the interpretation could maybe be better, that that let's be gentle, let's be kind, let's restore, let's renovate, let's recover, right? So, Today, what are we recovering? Um, I, I want to invite us today to consider that when it comes to how we read our Bibles, many of us need to recover good news. Our traditions, and and you know, like it's just the way that it is. Our traditions weren't trying to be awful. But, but our traditions handed us interpretations that maybe said it was good news, but the internal gymnastics that we had to do to make an angry and retributive God sound like good news was honestly more trauma-inducing than joy-producing, right? So the thing about good news is it may, it's doubly difficult when you come from a tradition that says we have no tradition, we just read the Bible. And so it can kind of put you in this double bind and... I want to just invite us to admit that we all have a tradition. Everybody has a tradition of some kind. And when that tradition becomes an anchor and not a sail, feel free to cut it loose and head for a new horizon. So that's what we're going to do today. We are speaking. Uh, I'm gonna, we are speaking. I am speaking. Maybe we'll speak together later. Who knows? But I'm speaking out of um, John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman. I don't know if that's a familiar one to you or not, but we're, we're going to find some really good news in this story today. And, and good news works like this. It's only good news if it's good news for you and for me and for people outside of our context and culture. If it's not, sit with it until we figure out where the good news is. Because in its original context gospel, you know, we throw around that word, this is the gospel, that actually was an ordinary, everyday, unchurchy word. It was a word like toaster or shopping. It was just gospel. So like when I was in my 20s and early 30s and we five times got to be like, hey, we're having a baby, that was gospel. And twice in my life when the Canucks made it to the final round, that was like, gospel, right? up until the end, right? So, um, Or like if you find something that's 50% off or you finish a medical treatment or you discover you're on Oprah's favorite things show, that is like, oh, that's gospel. You get some gospel and you get some gospel and you get some gospel, right? Like that is the feeling that good news should leave us with. So when Jesus came to earth, he was revealing the very good news through his life and ministry. He was showing us exactly what God was like, exactly what God had always been like. So this is why we say things like, Jesus is perfect theology, or Jesus is an interpretive tool or an interpretive rubric for us, right? But I want to push that just a little bit more. Jesus isn't an interpretive tool. He's a reinterpretive tool, a reinterpretive filter, because he didn't come to a world that was a blank slate in how it understood God, and we are not blank slates in how we understand God. So you're allowed to engage with your Bibles and dig deeper till you find a good news message for all people on every page. So what what I'm going to do is I'm going to really quickly... We're going we're gonna to go with the Richard Rohr process of order, disorder, reorder. So, you know, if it feels like it's all falling apart, take a breath, put those feelings on a boat, and let them go. Right? So, um, yeah, we're going to... So I, I did some research studying this story, and then I conducted an informal poll, which meant I leaned over to Josh one day and asked him a question about it, and asked him what the basic idea... Or what was like the traditional lesson that, that, so what is our order? What is the traditional lesson? We're coming in in a basic sense when we hear about the Samaritan woman. And so this is, this is gonna be a real short flyby and my tongue might be a little in my cheek, but you'll get the idea. So maybe you were like me and the Samaritan woman had her own song in church growing up. Do you remember this? Like the woman at the well, I was seeking... For things that could not satisfy. Yeah, she would never be satisfied. Anyways, um, you always throw in a Hamilton reference when you can. Um, The basic narrative was, and and still is in a lot of places, something like this. Okay? This is going to be fast. Jesus finds himself in Samaria, or he goes to Samaria, and there he meets a woman. And Jesus tries to give her some Bible. He tries to give her some truth. And she is playing coy. She's kind of lying. She's being evasive. So he does the only reasonable thing. He calls her out. He pulls out the old prophet in a hat party trick. And he says, you're a bit of a hussy, aren't you? Yeah, he was maybe Scottish. Who knows? (laughs) I mean, but like honestly, what else could she be? She had five husbands and the guy she's shacked up with now is not even her husband. And she gasps and she says, how did you know? And she tries to distract Jesus by talking about some religious stuff and and something that she has no business or knowledge to talk about because after all, she's a woman in a place where women are not educated, but Jesus wins the day, cause he always does. And she is so thankful for being called out of her sinful lifestyle and released to the good news. She leaves the well and she goes and tells her village about this guy who can totally read your mail and the whole village believed because she said he knows if you've been bad or good so be good for goodness sake right so what a great story about forgiveness and changing and finding your true calling in life to tell people the good news and to that i say jesus be a fence we need a hedge of protection around that interpretation we do Because, you guys, this is not good news. It all worked out in the end, no matter how it happens. It's not good news. Getting called out doesn't change people. Like, just think of anybody in society that you can think of that's held any kind of prominent position, that has been found out, that's been called out. Either there's defense, there's denial, there's putting away, or There's like a half admission, and then the behavior goes deeper, more hidden, and more deviant. Calling people out is not good news. So now that I've completely wrecked every song and story you've ever had related to the Samaritan woman, we're going to go back to the Bible. So it starts in John 4, and in verse 5. So he, Jesus, do I have it up there? Is it going to come? Perfect. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. It's a good idea, having a drink. So the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you a Jew. Ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Okay, so for starters, Samaria. And this is something that our tradition understood well. The fact that Jesus intentionally chooses to go to Samaria is scandalous. Like, it's not just like, hmm, a little bit dicey. Like, it's completely scandalous. So the audience reading this story that John has written would would have gotten that Samaritans are the definitive outsiders. Jews were the chosen ones that God liked, and there was no way Samaritans were the chosen people of God, because they were not Jews. Us versus them. They saw Samaritans as having sinful, irredeemable lifestyles. They were unclean. Not only were they unclean, they made you unclean by being around you. Like it wasn't just contained filth. It spread everywhere if you were to be a part or around them. It could be like the coronavirus. I don't know. But they hated them. Dignifying the Samaritans would wreck everything. That's a slippery slope, Jesus. So verse 10 picks up and Jesus answers her and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman says to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Well, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. You know what I love about the Bible? It forces me to decentralize my understanding. My experience is not the only experience. My reality is is not the only reality. My culture is not the only culture. I'm kind of forced to understand something that is completely foreign to me, but seemed so right to them. And, and I'm grateful, actually, that the Bible does not stand up well to a flat reading, but, re- but just requires me to dig deeper and to understand and to humble my opinions about dominance or facts or knowing or being right. That, that's actually an incredible gift. It's important to know that women in ancient cultures were totally absent of value. So everything in this story makes way more sense contextually if we think of this woman as having the same rights, agency, and voice as your sofa. I'm not joking. Think about a sofa. A sofa goes where you tell it to go, you do what you want with it, you move it around however you need to, you can sell it, you can thrift it, But a sofa cannot put itself on Craigslist, and a sofa can't decide to go to a different room because it wants to. So, like, we're not even going to be able to get to this part today, but the disciples' reaction, a few verses down, when they find Jesus talking to a sofa like it's a person, makes total sense. This This is such freaky stuff that Jesus is doing here. So the last half of verse 17 says, Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. So remember this, there's no social security, no public assistance, no Medicare, no medical insurance. For women, all of that was found in a single institution, marriage. But if you didn't produce sons, or they didn't like the way you cooked, or in the morning how you looked, sayonara, Sarah Lee. It was literally the easiest thing on the planet to divorce a woman. It's a total tangent, but it is why when Jesus is talking about, like, the one reason you can divorce a woman, the disciples are like, this is a hard teaching. Because it's, it's just to limit them to one. How are we going to do that? But for a woman, you had nothing. A woman could not divorce her husband. And she was powerless without one. And the only thing worse than being in a bad marriage that you couldn't leave was being so unworthy and unwanted that you would belong to a man as a sex slave or a slave worker but not be offered the safety and commitment of a marriage covenant. For a woman, marriage ensured that past your childbearing years, you would be taken care of. And the Samaritan woman was not a loose woman. I don't know if you remember this, but if she had been, they'd have stoned her. Loose women, immoral women, did not live to see a second marriage. This was life for women. And I think, you know, when we come... To understanding the interpretations that we were given, it's important to note that historically, especially in ancient literature, women have kind of always been given a flat reading and they sort of fall into three categories or three stereotypes, three archetypes, whatever you want to call them, and that is the mother, the virgin, and the whore. And so our tradition because it was traditional, has handed us uh, an interpretation that just lacks dynamic. And I think John is aware of this when he's writing this and retelling this story. He's he's already disrupting patriarchal power structures, and he's creating a, a character who is dynamic. He's animating women. So this is, this is a big deal that, that he's, he's not just putting her in this box of like someone virtuous, someone caregiving, or someone immoral. So another good question to ask when you're interpreting a story, especially an ancient one, and this is something my friend Edelet taught me, who is missing? The first thing missing in this story is other women. Have you ever wondered why women... I'll get up and go to the bathroom together. Like, have you ever, like, this, it's a social thing. Like, men don't really do it, but women do it. Why do we do it? And I think it's in part to do with that social, traditional understanding that a woman alone is completely vulnerable and unsafe. So women have always provided safety for one another in numbers, in community. They would work together, They would cook together. Their kids would play together. And at the beginning and end of the day, they would gather water together. But this woman, she doesn't even have that. She arrives at noon. She is alone. So she has either been pushed out, or maybe because of how she now perceives herself, she's removed herself from the game altogether. She's totally vulnerable. She's got to be lacking hope. And it makes sense that she would be super standoffish when Jesus is talking to her because she doesn't know it's Jesus. She just knows it's a Jew and she has every reason to be terrified. Where is her escape going to be? How is she going to provide safety for herself? The second thing that's missing in this story is another man. The whole exchange is the longest recorded private conversation that Jesus has with anybody in the Gospels. So Jesus, like, guys, I have to say it, Jesus has not heard about the Mike Pence rule. (laughs) And honestly, as a woman, I am so grateful. Where would we be without this good news? That Jesus could interact with a woman and give her, like, high-level truth and good news and restoration and not reduce her to a body. That's good news. Jesus is trying to show her how valuable and safe that she is. He's treating her kind of like a man. Or, like, maybe it's better to say with the same intelligence, value, and importance as a man. It would be, I think, impossible to miss that if you were a part of the original culture that was reading this. He's trying to hand her some spiritual truth that will change her life. But honestly, she is so armoured up, she can't hear it. She deflects, she makes jokes, she's not having any of it. She wants to get her water and get out of there, right? But the love of Jesus, wait for it. Sorry, oh. Okay, the love of Jesus is self-giving, co-suffering, and other-centered. This is the filter we need to hear the words of Jesus with. He doesn't prophesy to show his power. Jesus never needs to flex because he is so confident in who he is. It's just not how he does things. He, He does, it's called in Counseling 101, it's called mirroring. He hears what he says and he shows her, I have heard you. He reflects it back to her and then he takes it to that next level of seeing beyond seeing, understanding the big narrative that she's been living in. He does it to unlock the armor and access her broken heart. I just want you to picture his own heart breaking when he comes and he sees her there in the middle of the day without community, without dignity, just holding a water jug. And he breaks every law, every tradition, every social construct, every judgment, so that she will rearrange the way she sees herself. Jesus isn't judging her or shaming her. This is not a story of forgiveness and repentance. As great as forgiveness and repentance are, that's not what this is a story about. It's a story of brokenness, of restored identity, and belonging for those on the margins. This is such good news. It changes everything. He's telling her about her life. Just, just hear, the, hear it again. She says to Jesus, I have no husband. Don't even go there. You have no idea. And I can't even, because with all tenderness, Jesus says, you've had five husbands, Either you've known so much death and so much grief or you've been barren and you've been passed down from husband to brother to brother to brother to brother and finally they got tired of you and kicked you out and all you could do was take whoever would take you and use you. She's believed everything that her life has told her about her value. She's probably added some labels of her own. He just he sees that she's suffered so much and he basically just says, "I see you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Will you accept my gift of love that will never run dry?" Mm-hmm. And I want to say in that moment, Houston, we've achieved breakthrough. Mm-hmm. She has been seen and known. Mm-hmm. And she lowers her defenses. In this moment, she sees herself as Jesus sees her. This is good news. Verse 19 says, The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Important things to know. The Jews were looking for a Messiah who would be a political savior. But the Samaritans... We're waiting for a Messiah who was a prophet that would restore the law of Moses. It's hard for us to understand what it is to belong to a community that has a generations, centuries long, overarching narrative of the reason you exist and the thing you are waiting for. It's hard for us to understand that everything is about the Messiah. Where's the Messiah? Who's the Messiah? How's he going to look? What's he going to be like? When's he going to come? And they were looking for a prophet, not a politician. And I wonder, as everything in her heart has been reshaped by the love of God, if she's not sitting there wondering, all the stories that she's heard the men talk about and that the women have discussed privately together, the questions that they've had about Who's right, us or the Jews? What will the Messiah be like? They're, they're all swirling in her head. I mean, it's true. She's not been allowed to contribute to the, the big community conversation, but she's certainly been around. Because, guys, I mean, who else makes coffee and brings sandwiches to these manly theological discussions? <laughs> like, we just know that's just, this just what happens. But the truth is, she's been a learner and a listener all her life. These are stories and ideas and questions that are generations old. So she's thinking it's obvious he's got the gift of prophecy. He has just seen me. But what if, maybe, what if he's the prophet they've all been waiting for? I mean, she's already been changed by Jesus seeing her, right? Like like, she's finished. She's, she's good. Her well is being filled, but the thing about good news is that you get filled up to overflowing, and you want to share it. You want others to be filled. So she does a very brave thing, where she now begins to follow Jesus as the way, and she breaks every cultural boundary, and crosses over to him, and gets into, back into this theological conversation that he'd started earlier. I mean, like, there's just nobody like Jesus. Jesus. He always goes first. He loves first. He risks first. He breaks rules and traditions first. But she joins him. And she crosses over. And she values herself like she has the same importance, value, and intelligence that Jesus thinks she has. So in verse 20, she says this. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say, you Jews, say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. And in a bunch of translations, it says, in fact, it is now here. You are it. When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. But we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. Oh, there it is. There's the now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman says to him, Oh, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll proclaim all things to us. And Jesus says to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. And as much as the Samaritans are the underdog in this story, you know, I love that this just points to like a really cross cultural human experience. Hmm. She's not really in her questions that much different from the Jews and not much different from us. Her questions and often our own questions look like who's right? Us or them? Who does God like best? Us or them? What version of the Bible does God read, Jesus? Which doctrine do you like best, God? Can you tell me that? And Jesus, because he's Jesus, is so kind with his answer. He says, we're all worshiping something. Some of us can name it. And some of us can't yet name it. But a true worshiper is not about your status, your gender, your education, your affiliation, or your history. A true worshiper is one who worships in spirit and truth. So can you picture Jesus looking into those eyes that have just been filled to the brim with the best news she's ever heard? God is spirit. God is not a Jew or a Samaritan or a man or a woman or a Canadian or an American or a Mennonite or a contemplative. God transcends our labels and boxes and social structures that tell us who's right or wrong, in or out. He's above those limitations. And the more we behold Christ, the wider our embrace must become. And he invites her to do the same and worship as those who are loved, who are filled with life that comes from the source of all truth, from Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the everything. And can you see her looking at Jesus, knowing because the Spirit is testifying in her? I think she's just like, she's having an experience with with God here. But she wants to hear him say the words. She says, when that Messiah comes, he'll tell us about everything, all things. He'll tell us about everything we ever did, the way we worshipped, the way we understood God, or how we understood or misunderstood what life should be like. The Messiah will show us the way. Say it. Say it, Jesus. Tell me what my heart already knows. And he answers, I am the Messiah. Well, like she can't even. On a scale of one to even, she literally cannot. It's true. She knows this is not just good news for her. And and that's one of the markers of a story reinterpreted with Jesus at the center. We want other people to experience, not just know it but to encounter it. This is where transformation happens, and this is what happens for her people. They believe her words, which is unheard of. And then she leads them to Jesus to experience it for themselves, which is some pretty good leadership from an unwanted, untrained, and unworthy woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know of anybody who's had the heartbreak of five husbands. Mm -hmm. But I have carried the weight of labels, of soul-crushing beliefs about who I was and how I was in the world. I mean, who hasn't? Mm -hmm. Right? So today, Steve is not able to lead us in a closing song, so we're going to have an experience together. So I just would invite you right now I was the loud one, I was the too much one, the too many questions one, the when will it turn out right one, the only good for a joke one, the could you please be seated and let things be, this is just the way church is one, the please be quiet Karina one. And as long as I believe that was true. I saw myself as empty, wanting, and broken, and I would keep coming back to the well to remind myself over and over again how thirsty and lacking I was. And I refused the living water that Jesus was offering me. Maybe it was, in fact, always in me, but I had taped and sealed up that well with a wall that his love had to break through. I needed Jesus to see me, And prophesy the truth back into me. I'm the loud one because God has given me something to say. I bring comic relief because God would like you to know that he's in a good mood and he likes to laugh. I'm a troublemaker because guys, the patriarchy is not going to smash itself a crap disturber because aren't we all a little tired of being up to our eyeballs in this rancid stuff and trying to call it good news? Spring up a well within my soul. Clear the path. Set the captives free. Mend the brokenhearted. This is what good news does. We need some good news every day in every story. Good thing this well of mercy and love and kindness that comes from the Father doesn't ever run dry. But it's no good if you just hear this story and you don't get to experience it. Believe the Samaritan woman. Believe me. And then let it transform you because you experience it yourself. So I would invite you this morning to close your eyes and picture a hot desert day. On the outskirts of a small town, see the tumbleweeds, the cactus, feel the heat. And in front of you, you see a well. And you see Jesus resting beside it. And I just want to remind us that it's safe to use our imaginations here. Imagination isn't fake, it's the kind of real that God uses to communicate in metaphors and similes and often. just just gets to our heart a lot faster. So I'll give you two options here. Maybe you're tired, worn out, brokenhearted, full of grief, carrying the weight of a story that seems to disqualify you from belonging or believing that you're worthy of love. I want you to let it be you that comes to the well. Or maybe maybe you can picture a people group or a political party or a lifestyle that you've been told was excluded from the love and belonging of God people that if we opened the door to them to any of them, it would make us all unclean who are the people in the margins the unwanted ones the unworthy ones if that's who's coming to mind I want you to picture them approaching the well tired alone, without safety or dignity? Can you feel the heat? Can you sense the fear, the weight of pent-up sadness? Are you thirsty? Whichever story or person you're identifying with look into the eyes of Jesus? Could you look into the eyes of love itself? Love that has seen every moment of pain and suffered it alongside with you. He's not ashamed of your pain. He's not asking you to get over it. He just must to be there with you. Can you see how you are the one, they are the one he's come for? His love and attention is directed towards you, towards them. Can you believe that if you put down your jug, the walls within will come down and you will have direct access to the well that never runs dry? water will wash away every misconception of who you are and how you should be or who they are and how they should be. This is good news. This is Jesus. He's the one we've been waiting for and he's here. You just be appropriate.